Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 40, The Eagleton Affair, a scandal that contributed to one of the worst presidential election defeats in history. On the surface, Tom Eagleton seemed the ideal running mate for George McGovern's 1972 presidential campaign. He was young, handsome, and that rare breed of politician who managed to earn the respect of both sides of the aisle, all while maintaining his integrity. Plus, though he was only in his early 40s, he had already fought several public elections and had never lost. Tom Eagleton was a winner. But upon closer examination, there were odd details about Tom. The occasional strange gesture, the shaking hands. Sometimes he even sweated like a racehorse. A reporter once noted that after interviewing Tom, the young senator's blazer was so soaked with sweat, you could wring the water out of it. He also smoked at least two packs a day, frequently lighting a cigarette only to put it out seconds later and light a new one. During a campaign, he could undergo severe, even frightening weight loss. There were rumors of alcoholism and worse. Still, McGovern offered Tom Eagleton the vice presidential nomination, and Tom leapt at the opportunity. A staffer asked Tom if there was anything in his past that might jeopardize the campaign. He paused for a moment, then responded, no. Years later, long after the dumpster fire of the 1972 presidential campaign had gone out, McGovern noted, history would render a different judgment. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. 
Tom Francis Eagleton was groomed for the highest positions in the United States government from an early age, thanks to the ambitions of his father, lawyer Mark Eagleton Sr. There was the elite St. Louis Country Day School. Then there were the supplementary tutors, even during summer vacation. It wasn't that Tom wasn't an excellent student. He was. But no matter how well he did, his father wanted him to do better. And to keep his mind on politics. Mark constantly took Tom to political events. And not just events touting his own liberal politics. He made sure to expose Tom to a wide swath of perspectives, even those he disagreed with. Still, it wasn't enough just to watch politics from the sidelines. Young Tom also took lessons in public speaking and public affairs. Mark even hired private debate coaches to train his son. Some children might have resented their father for pushing them so hard on a predetermined career path. Not Tom. He loved politics, and he was driven by a burning desire to make his father proud. His mother had a very different effect on him. Though little is known about Zeta Eagleton's personal life, it seems Tom was very close to her. He was just 18 when she died in 1948. The loss shook Tom deeply and may have catalyzed his first experience of depression. Nevertheless, Tom graduated cum laude from Amherst College in 1950. After a summer at Oxford, he enrolled at Harvard Law School. Upon receiving his degree, Tom returned to St. Louis, where he apprenticed at his father's firm and then served as assistant general counsel to the Anheuser-Busch Brewing Company. But working in private practice was never going to satiate Tom Eagleton. His ambitions went much higher thanks to his father's training. Eager to kick off his political career, he ran for circuit attorney of St. Louis in 1956, and he won. At age 26, he was the youngest circuit attorney in the city's history. It was an auspicious start. Tom was shaping up to be a man in John F. Kennedy's mold, young, smart, Irish Catholic. But also like Kennedy, he would be afflicted by a disease which needed to be kept hidden if he were ever to succeed in public office. That illness first manifested itself in the wake of Tom's next electoral campaign. In 1959, as his four-year term as circuit attorney was nearing its end, Tom reached for the next rung on the political ladder, Attorney General of Missouri. It wouldn't be an easy race. No Catholic had ever won a statewide office in predominantly Protestant Missouri. Plus, while Tom was running for Attorney General of Missouri, John F. Kennedy was running for President of the United States. Kennedy's campaign unintentionally made Catholicism something of a national issue. Catholics were accused of pledging their allegiance to the Roman Pope over the American state. But Tom wouldn't be deterred. He felt sure that Kennedy would win the national campaign. And he knew that if Kennedy could win across the country, he could win in Missouri. If he put in enough effort. Tom pushed himself to the limit during the contest, rarely getting more than three or four hours of sleep a night. Never a heavy man, he lost 26 pounds by election day. But Tom was right. 
his energetic campaigning paid dividends. In 1960, at just 31 years old, he was elected Attorney General of Missouri by a wide margin. It was an intoxicating victory, and one that foreshadowed greater laurels. With Kennedy in the White House, the sky was the limit for young Irish Catholic politicians. And yet, the success of Tom's first campaign win wasn't untarnished. Once the ebullience of the electoral triumph wore off, Tom sank into lethargy. The intensive campaigning had been something of a drug, and now he was suffering withdrawals. He spent much of his time watching television, listless, while suffering occasional outbursts of anger. Probably at the urging of his father, Tom was admitted to Barnes Hospital in St. Louis. The press was told he suffered from a stomach virus. In truth, Tom was in the hospital's psychiatric division, undergoing treatment for depression. In addition to talk therapy, medication, and rest, he also received electroshock treatment. The rise of his political fortunes coincided with the escalation of a debilitating mental condition, which threatened to derail his career right as it was picking up speed. With Tom still in the hospital as Inauguration Day approached, Missouri Governor-elect John Dalton supposedly threatened to swear in someone else as Attorney General if Tom didn't show up on time. So Tom was discharged to be sworn in by Dalton, only to turn right back around and return to the hospital. Though he wouldn't be properly diagnosed until years later, Tom was suffering from bipolar disorder. The frenetic pace of his campaigning wasn't just a result of his ambition. It was a manifestation of hypomania, a period of extremely elated, energized behavior. Once the campaign ended, Tom crashed into a depressive episode of indifference and emptiness. At a time when mental illness was seen not only as deeply taboo, but also as an absolute impediment to the responsibilities of public office, this was more than a personal issue for Tom. It was a professional one. He had to get better, and he had to hide that he'd ever been unwell. Luckily, after about four weeks, Tom's treatment seemed to work. And once he left the hospital, he reacclimated quickly. He ruled against raises for state legislators, opposed unrestricted wiretapping and the death penalty, and condemned the violence unleashed by Birmingham police on civil rights protesters. But the office was never intended to be more than a stepping stone. The next prize was the Lieutenant Governorship of Missouri, a proven path toward higher offices. James T. Blair had used the post to propel him into the governor's mansion, while Edward Long used it to reach the U.S. Senate. Tom was elected lieutenant governor in 1964 without serious opposition. But once again, from the dizzying heights of victory, Tom crashed into the lows of depression. This bout was so severe that Tom didn't want to get out of bed. He received treatment for several days at the Mayo Clinic. His third debilitating bout of depression followed in 1966. He returned to the Mayo Clinic, 
The press was told that the stay was for gastric disturbance. As part of his treatment, Tom once again received shock therapy. And following the now familiar pattern, the treatment seemed effective. Tom went back to work. When his term as lieutenant governor approached its end in 1968, he decided to parlay his political connections and popularity in Missouri into a run at the next rank in the American cursus honorum, the United States Senate. The timing was good. Tom's opponent for the Democratic nomination was the incumbent Edward Long, who was currently embroiled in a scandal. Life magazine alleged that Long had used his influence in the Senate on behalf of Jimmy Hoffa, the mobbed-up president of the Teamsters Union. In return, Long had allegedly received tens of thousands of dollars from Hoffa's chief legal counsel. With Long's reputation tarnished, Tom managed to unseat him in the Democratic primary. But the general election against Republican candidate Thomas Curtis was far tougher. And with a more contentious election came greater press scrutiny. Time magazine reported rumors that Tom suffered from alcoholism and depression and had received shock therapy although the publication couldn't confirm any of the rumors. Time also reported that while campaigning, Tom had appeared to lose so much weight that he struggled to keep his pants up, another sign that something was wrong with this apparently perfect candidate. As the 1968 poll results ticked in, Tom and his staffers stared at that Time article. Rumors were one thing, but rumors printed in Time magazine were another. Then, better news came in, a victory. Thankfully for the campaign, the column hadn't tanked Tom's political fortunes, yet. He was now a member of the United States Senate. As senator, Tom was an advocate for District of Columbia home rule, strengthening the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, reducing military expenditure, and getting out of Vietnam. He earned respect from both sides of the aisle. And luckily during this time, Tom had no serious health issues, despite taking his father's death in 1970 quite hard. It's no surprise that by 1971, the expose on Tom's health seemed to be forgotten, or that his name appeared on a list of potential vice presidential picks for candidate George McGovern. Coming up, Tom reaches for the heights of the American political establishment and hopes his mental health history doesn't topple him before he gets there. Now, back to the story. Richard Nixon's victory in the 1968 presidential race suggested a national pivot to the right. And former Lieutenant Governor of Missouri Tom Eagleton's mental health issues were starting to make their way into the press. But despite this unfriendly climate, the 39-year-old liberal was able to eke out an election to the U.S. Senate. 
Once there, it didn't take him long to start garnering attention from party leadership, including presidential hopeful George McGovern. McGovern's presidential platform was anti-war. He called for reductions in military spending and amnesty for draft resistors. His campaign sought a wide base of support from marginalized groups, women, people of color, and the poor. This relatively radical platform led one anonymous senator to accuse McGovern of being for amnesty, abortion, and legalization of pot. The description was less than accurate, but nevertheless, McGovern became known as the AAA candidate, acid, amnesty, and abortion. Years later, it was revealed that the anonymous senator who had disparaged McGovern was Tom Eagleton. At the time, he supported McGovern's opponent, Edmund Muskie, for the Democratic nomination. But Muskie wasn't destined to win. McGovern, initially a dark horse, captured the California delegates' votes during the Democratic primaries and thus the party's nomination. The results were contested by McGovern's opponents, who felt that the rules governing the nomination process were unfair. Delegates weren't divvied up based on a candidate's share of the vote, but rather awarded in a winner-takes-all system. Incidentally, one of the leading architects of the winner-takes-all system had been George McGovern. The dispute over the system engendered a great deal of bad blood in the Democratic Party. If McGovern wanted to unify the party and provide a serious challenge to Nixon, whose popularity seemed unassailable at the time, he would need to select a strong, popular running mate, someone who could buttress his own weaknesses during the campaign. For McGovern, that would ideally mean a less radical running mate. Which Tom Eagleton certainly was. Tom wasn't the best-known politician in the country at the time, nor particularly experienced at national-level politics. So McGovern's first vice presidential choice was Ted Kennedy. Despite the very recent Chappaquiddick incident, in which the Massachusetts senator's negligence caused the death of a campaign staffer in a car accident, Kennedy was still extremely popular. Polls indicated that of all the likely vice presidential candidates, only Ted Kennedy boosted McGovern's chance of defeating Nixon. But Ted Kennedy declined. Ed Muskie, still stinging from his controversial loss to McGovern in the primaries, declined an invitation too. As did Hubert Humphrey, the Democratic candidate who lost to Nixon in 1968. Things were getting frantic in the McGovern offices. They needed a candidate, and they needed him now. July 13, 1972, was the last day of the Democratic National Convention. McGovern had sealed the nomination, but he had a 4 p.m. deadline by which to select a running mate. McGovern had his staffers draw up a new shortlist of potential candidates. Tom Eagleton was one name among 22. But even on the day of the running mate deadline, he wasn't the first call. Unable to nab any of his top four choices, McGovern was willing to settle for Ted Kennedy's brother-in-law, Sergeant Shriver. But Shriver was in the Soviet Union and couldn't be reached in time for the 4 p.m. deadline. Walter Mondale, a colleague in the Senate, was the next choice. He declined. 
Senator Abe Ribicoff passed too. Kevin White, the mayor of Boston, was considered, but had to be rejected due to Ted Kennedy's hostility towards him. Even though McGovern couldn't convince Kennedy to join him on the ticket, he still needed his backing for the upcoming campaign. Frank Mankiewicz half-jokingly suggested TV anchorman Walter Cronkite. He wasn't contacted since everyone felt it was a pipe dream. Years later, when Cronkite heard about this, he said he would have accepted. Next, McGovern called Gaylord Nelson, a Wisconsin senator, and begged him to accept the nomination. Nelson had no interest in the job, but recommended Tom Eagleton. What Nelson failed to mention was that he knew Tom had struggled with potentially campaign-damaging mental health issues. It was to be a common feature of the Eagleton affair. Those who knew about Tom's depression failed to mention it. Those who suspected it never bothered to investigate further. For instance, McGovern's political director, Frank Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz knew about Tom's hospitalizations and had for a month prior to the convention. But apparently, the potentially explosive information just slipped his mind. He didn't say a peep when Tom's name appeared on the running mate list. It was to be the first in a long line of mistakes made by the McGovern camp. Though he was far from anyone's first choice, Tom's credentials did seem to offer the McGovern team exactly what they needed. He was popular with establishment Democrats, especially labor leaders, whom McGovern's radicalism threatened to alienate. And he was no Kennedy, but Tom was youthful, optimistic, and Irish Catholic. His most promising qualification, however, was that he seemed to be the only man in America who actually wanted to be vice president. With nowhere else to turn, McGovern called Tom at 3.45 p.m., just 15 minutes before the deadline. In a conversation that lasted less than a minute, Tom eagerly accepted. A year after his father's death, he was finally getting close to the highest office in the land. A McGovern staffer crossed out Kevin White on the filing papers and replaced it with Thomas Francis Eagleton just in time for the 4 p.m. deadline. Only then did Mankiewicz follow up with Tom. He asked the senator if he had any skeletons in the closet that could threaten the campaign, still apparently not thinking about the skeletons he'd already been told were there. Tom insisted that he did not. And that was that. Years later, Tom said that he neglected to tell Mankiewicz about his mental health issues because he considered himself cured. After all, he hadn't had an incident in five years, not since 1966. However, it's more likely that Tom took a gamble that the issue wouldn't come up, or that if it did, he would be able to power through the fallout. He had back in 1968 during the Senate election, and John F. Kennedy, one of Tom's heroes, had managed to conceal his Addison's disease from the public for years. Surely Tom could pull off the same trick. As to why staffers had either not caught wind of the information or not passed it along to McGovern, there are several explanations. One, a formal vetting process wasn't yet in place. There was no standard procedure for combing through rumors about potential candidates. 
Two, while rumors of a drinking problem had haunted Tom for years, these were dismissed by those who knew better. So it must have been easy to dismiss the mental health rumors, too, even if some of them were published in Time magazine. Finally, Tom wasn't seriously considered until very late in the process. The campaign staff may have felt there simply wasn't time for a thorough investigation. Within hours, this error would come to light, and Tom's personal horror show would start to play out. In the wee hours of July 14, 1972, Tom's advisor, Doug Bennett, ran into McGovern's executive assistant, Gordon Weil, at their hotel. Weil brought up the rumors of Tom's alcoholism and mental illness, perhaps testing the waters and expecting a negative response, which he got in part. Bennett assured him that Tom never had problems with alcohol, but he did admit that Tom had been hospitalized for depression. He insisted the issue was so inconsequential that it was barely worth mentioning. Weil, however, wasn't so sure that was true. He brought the news to McGovern's campaign manager. Matters quickly escalated. Within hours, the McGovern staff learned that Time was investigating the Eagleton rumors once again now that Tom was on the presidential ticket. Reporters were already on the ground in St. Louis, piecing together Tom's medical history. And of course, the campaign knew what they'd find. A vice presidential candidate with a verifiable history of mental illness was not going to make McGovern look like a steady, reliable pick for president. Only hours after Tom Eagleton's slapdash, poorly researched invitation to the presidential ticket, the choice was threatening to blow up the entire Democratic campaign. Coming up, the McGovern campaign and the U.S. electorate struggle with the implications of Tom Eagleton's illness. Now, back to the story. Tom Eagleton was invited to join George McGovern's presidential ticket at the very last minute on July 13, 1972, specifically 15 minutes before the deadline. Perhaps because of the rushed decision-making, perhaps because of negligence, it was only after Tom enthusiastically accepted the nomination that the campaign realized they should have vetted him more thoroughly. Early the next morning, McGovern's political director, Frank Mankiewicz, called Tom and asked him about his psychiatric hospitalizations. Tom assured him that they had only been for exhaustion and fatigue. Mankiewicz asked if the medical records, which the press were after, might reveal anything more. Tom admitted they might show a diagnosis of depression. This called for an emergency meeting. Tom, Frank Mankiewicz, and campaign manager Gary Hart came together in the dining room of the U.S. Senate. Tom admitted he'd been hospitalized on three occasions between 1960 and 1966 and had received electroshock therapy on two of those occasions. The group was horrified. Electroshock was taboo and poorly understood at the time, as were the mental health issues electroshock were meant to treat. The McGovern camp was far from certain that even the most liberal voters would react with sympathy. 
There was also the very real concern of electing a man with potential mental instability to a post just one heartbeat away from the presidency. The Cold War still loomed large in 1972. No one wanted someone with compromised mental health in charge of the proverbial red button. It was time, finally, to bring the ill tidings to McGovern, along with several options of what to do next. Frank Mankiewicz wanted Tom to withdraw from the ticket. Gary Hart wanted to wait until they had access to Tom's medical records and a clearer picture of the current crisis. McGovern chose Hart's path. After all, for all the panic swirling around the room, the press still didn't have proof of anything. Of course, before he did anything, McGovern would have to talk to Tom Eagleton. On July 25, 1971, just 12 days after the Democratic National Convention, Tom met with McGovern in South Dakota, and Tom confessed to everything. He also offered to step down if it seemed like he was hurting the ticket. But McGovern brushed aside the offer, responding to Tom's tale with a kind, that's not too bad. McGovern's response was generous and may have been affected by the fact that his own daughter, Terry, had struggled with alcoholism and depression for years. By rejecting Tom because of his mental health, he would be sending a cruel message to his own daughter. But it was also foolish. He was in denial about the disaster his campaign was about to face. His next move would also prove foolish. After his conversation with Tom, McGovern decided to jettison the plan to wait patiently for more information. The best way forward was get ahead of the news, hold a press conference, and tell the story their way. His staffers didn't agree and urged him to reconsider. Maybe proof would never come out and they could deny everything. But McGovern wanted the problem solved immediately. And at the end of the day, this was his campaign to win or to lose. McGovern and Tom held their press conference at Custer State Park in South Dakota. Tom disclosed his hospitalizations, admitting they were for depression. He also confirmed that he had received electroshock treatment. McGovern told the press that he hadn't known these facts about Tom before inviting him to join the campaign. But even if he had, he would still have picked him as his running mate. The next day, he issued a statement proclaiming that he was 1,000% for Tom Eagleton. By supporting Tom so completely, McGovern must have felt he was taking the high road. Of course, if he ever were to retract his 1,000% support for Tom, then undoubtedly he'd appear heartless and mercurial. On July 27th, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jack Anderson accused Tom Eagleton of having been arrested six times for drunk driving. Eventually, the story was retracted. Anderson admitted he had made a mistake, but by then, the damage was done. The Washington Post, New York Times, Chicago Sun-Times, Los Angeles Times, and Denver Post all urged Tom to withdraw. Important Democrats like Gaylord Nelson and Walter Mondale publicly asserted that Tom was bad for the ticket. 
major contributors threatened to cease their funding. Tom had become political poison. Seemingly everyone had abandoned him, save McGovern. But by late July 1972, even McGovern was caving to the pressure. After all, he did want to win the election. And clearly, Tom Eagleton was not helping that cause. The overwhelming narrative was that American voters would not stand with Tom, nor sympathize with him, nor appreciate that he had overcome adversity to conduct an impressive career. McGovern allowed himself to be convinced that it was true. He started dropping hints to reporters of the difficulties facing his campaign after the Eagleton revelations. Perhaps he hoped that Tom would take the hint and voluntarily withdraw. He was groping for a way out, but whether for personal reasons or for the sake of consistency, he couldn't bear to pull the plug and explicitly ask Tom to leave the campaign. Meanwhile, rather than cooperating for the sake of the campaign, the Eagleton and McGovern staffs became increasingly estranged and hostile toward each other. McGovern staff pushed for Tom to hand over his medical records. Tom's staff demurred. And while Tom had earlier pledged to drop out if he was hurting the campaign, a contingent of popular support for his situation, as well as a private endorsement from Ted Kennedy, convinced him that he should stay on the ticket. Meanwhile, more moderate Democrats who had opposed McGovern during the primaries now spitefully rallied around Tom, exacerbating the party divisions even further. On July 30th, McGovern met privately with Tom in Washington, D.C. Tom insisted that his handling of the whole fiasco had been a net positive, that he had appeared strong and dignified under scrutiny. He told McGovern, quote, when you picked me, I was an absolute zero. But George, since all of this has happened, I believe I'm a plus. Sure, I'll cost you some votes amongst the worry warts, but George, I'll get you more votes amongst people who respect a fighter. George, I'm fighting for my political life. It was an impassioned speech. They agreed to sleep on it. The next day, July 31st, they met again. But neither sleep nor Tom's speech had changed McGovern's mind. The Missourian had become an albatross around his neck. McGovern told Tom that while he personally believed he was in good health, the public wouldn't understand. Tom agreed to step down on the condition that the official reasoning for doing so was party unity and not Tom's mental health. They said as much at a press conference in the Senate caucus room on August 1st, 1972. Tom Eagleton's candidacy for vice president had lasted a mere 18 days. But perhaps McGovern would have done better if he'd kept Tom on the ticket. Contrary to expectations, many Americans came out in support of Tom. Some noted that Abraham Lincoln, perhaps our nation's greatest president, had suffered from melancholy, an archaic term for clinical depression. Nowhere was the support for Tom more enthusiastic than in his home state of Missouri. If anything, Tom came out of the whole mess even more beloved than before. 
McGovern was not so fortunate. After replacing Tom with Sergeant Shriver as his running mate, McGovern would go on to lose the 1972 presidential election in one of the biggest landslides in the history of the office. Tom said the whole affair was nothing more than one rock in a landslide. McGovern noted that landslides begin with a single rock. Although the Eagleton affair was a disaster, it would be too reductive to say that it alone cost McGovern the presidency. Far more damning were the divides within the Democratic Party, which McGovern was never able to heal. Without a unifying candidate to rally around, the party couldn't assemble a serious opposition to Nixon. Nixon himself was the other key factor. Long before Tom Eagleton entered the picture, the incumbent was polling far ahead of McGovern. It was two years before Watergate, and surveys indicated that Nixon was the most well-liked political leader in the country. After the dust settled over the scandal, Tom managed to win re-election to the Senate in 1974 and then again in 1980. In 1987, he announced he would not be seeking re-election. He had become disillusioned with, quote, the stench of money around the Capitol. On a more positive note, he and McGovern eventually reconciled and remained on friendly terms. Not long before the senator passed, McGovern said that he regretted his treatment of Tom, declaring, if I had to do it over again, I'd have kept him. I didn't know anything about mental illness. Nobody did. McGovern was right. Contemporary attitudes about mental illness were a major player in the entire Eagleton affair. Some blame, too, must rest on Tom Eagleton himself, who failed to disclose the whole truth to McGovern when he had the chance. And McGovern's staff should also be faulted for not investigating the rumors that they knew were out there. Then there's McGovern himself. All the decisions were ultimately his. From offering Tom the nomination despite knowing virtually nothing about him, to prematurely vowing to stand by Tom 1,000% and then abandoning him when it seemed politically shrewd to do so. It was a collective disaster. But still, it didn't turn Thomas Eagleton's heart against the world or even the political establishment. Before he passed away in 2007, at the age of 77, he wrote a letter to his loved ones, reminding them to go forth in love and peace, be kind to dogs, and vote Democratic. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with number 39 on our countdown, the Kansas Territorial Election. In the years before the Civil War, Kansas had not one, but two legislatures vying for control. For more information on the Eagleton Affair, amongst the many sources we used, we found The 18-Day Running Mate by Joshua M. Glasser and Call Me Tom by James N. Giglio extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream political scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type political scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Joel Stein. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard.